Morning, folks, and uh, thank you, Peter, for reading to us that wonderfully long passage that we're going to be looking at and thinking about now. So please do have your Bibles open at page 1077, 78 in the Church Bibles, or whatever version you're using. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will not die, will live even though they die. These words of Jesus are the key to today's passage. And they may well be quite familiar to us. You've probably heard them recited at funerals. These are powerful words, aren't they? They speak to us of the Lord's great comfort to us. The great hope that he brings to every believer that death is not the end. No, it's life. Resurrection life, not just life, but resurrection life that is ours, even though someday we will all die. And that's a hope that we need to be reminded of today. So I need to raise it up a bit, do I? Okay. Is that better? Great. Sorry, I hope you can hear me better now. So, resurrection life, it's a hope that we need to be reminded of today as much as any day, don't we? Uh, and not just at funerals. We need it today, we need it here this morning, as we consider this account of Lazarus in John chapter 11. Well, this passage addresses head-on two of the most painful subjects in anybody's experience, illness and death. And both are subjects that, frankly, I'd really rather not be talking about this morning. Death is never far from us, as the events in Ukraine have made so agonisingly clear to us in these last couple of weeks. For the last two years, of course, COVID has ruled us with an iron fist, hasn't it? And COVID besides, there are plenty of other nasty ailments that we have to contend with and struggle with as we go through life. Perhaps you're feeling that, well, maybe my faith will buckle under the weight of a severe illness. I know I have that fear a lot. Well, if that's you, there is great assurance to be found in today's reading of Lazarus raised from the dead. John has recorded this extraordinary miracle so that you and I can live by faith, leaning on the one who has conquered death, who himself is the resurrection and the life. Jesus is our resurrection and our life. And this passage shows us what that means to us in three ways. So firstly, illness will not end in death. Illness will not end in death. Ah, but all too often it does. Our experience screams back at us. So imagine this. A close family member is dying in hospital. No amount of medication or treatment is going to prolong their life. So what do you do? Well, you fall on your knees and you pray for them to recover, don't you? And what if they don't recover? Even if we're firm believers, things like this can shake us to our very core. We can start to asking, we can start asking just like Martha and Mary, 
and their Jewish neighbours in this passage. Jesus, we prayed. Why didn't you show up? Verses 21 and 32. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Have you ever thought like that? If only Jesus had intervened in this situation, in that situation, all would have been well. So why didn't he? Lord, if you had been here, Jesus, we prayed. Jesus, we prayed and we prayed. We prayed long and hard. We kept on praying and nothing changed. When is he ever going to show up? Maybe it's just not worth carrying on praying. Well, when Jesus apparently doesn't intervene, we can easily lose the motivation to pray and to carry on asking him for help. But just because the help we've asked for hasn't materialised doesn't mean that Jesus is ignoring our prayers. Sometimes what we need is a, a way of seeing our present situation in a fresh light. It may be that Jesus is working for our good at a deeper level than what we currently see on the surface of our lives. The story of Lazarus is a really great example of this. Jesus will heal Lazarus, but that is only part of a much deeper, much more wonderful plan that he has to bring resurrection life that extends well beyond Lazarus, even as far as us today in Banbury. So let's have a closer look. Verse 1, the scenario is set out before us. Jesus' good friend Lazarus, whom he loves, has fallen ill. Lazarus's two sisters send out the SOS in verse 3. And Jesus deliberately chooses not to come. He stays where he is. Verse 4, more than that, he seems disarmingly confident that this illness will not end in death. Okay, so maybe it's going to be one of those long-distance healings, a bit like the one that he did for the centurion's servant in Matthew chapter 8. No, hang on a minute, now, now, no, he's, he's talking about Lazarus falling asleep. We don't really know what that means. And, and now he's telling us that Lazarus has actually died. Hang on a minute, Jesus, you told us that this illness will not end in death. So which is it? It's one of those moments in the gospel where Jesus is fit, facing a situation with spiritual foresight that his disciples and those around him simply do not have. It's small wonder they were just a little bit confused as to what Jesus was planning in verse 12 and verse 16. And if we had been there, I'm sure we would have been no less confused. And so that's why it's so important that John spells out to us what the tenor of Jesus' cryptic statement in verse 4 is. When Jesus says that Lazarus' illness will not end in death, the ending he envisages is situated beyond the reach of the illness. Sure, the illness proves to be a mortal one, and that's not unimportant. As we read on, we'll come to see just how much Jesus loves Lazarus' family. 
in their moment of grief. But nevertheless, verse 4 again, Lazarus's illness is caught up in God's much bigger plan of redemption, tending always towards the glory of the Father and of the Son. So when Jesus hears the news that Lazarus is sick and does not immediately come to his aid, it's not because he doesn't care. No, verse 5, Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. He wants what's best for them. He doesn't just want Lazarus to be healed, but something even better. He wants the whole community to know that he's been sent by God the Father to conquer death. Even if that means that first, the two sisters and their community will have to suffer the anguish of their brother dying before he can live again at Jesus' command. Well, maybe you know somebody, maybe even someone who's close to you, who is dying from an illness. Perhaps like Lazarus, it's someone who's fading away long before old age sets in. Certainly in those times, it can feel like Jesus isn't showing up when his healing ministry is just a thing of the past. And yes, we should pray for healing and continue to do so. God can and does choose to heal people as he works out his purposes. And as we wait to see what he will do, we can know that he is holding us fast and is at work in us. Romans 8.28 tells us that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. For those of us who believe neither illness nor death are the end. And his good purposes go far beyond what we can see or imagine. So this brings me to my second point. Look to Jesus' better resurrection. By verse 44, at the end of our passage, Lazarus is alive again. Great. Jesus has done it again. He's pulled off another spectacular miracle. He's raised Lazarus from death. Let the party begin. And yet, what we get at the end of the Lazarus episode in John 11 is not an extended account of how Jesus turned the community's mourning into dancing and celebrations. So it's not like what you get at the end of the prodigal son story, is it? Now, I'm sure they were all jolly glad to have their brother Lazarus back amongst them once they'd got rid of his mouldy grave clothes and sent him off to freshen up a bit, had a bath. But we should be under no illusion that it's all about Lazarus being alive again. Just think about it for a moment. Lazarus, he's been raised from the dead, but he's not immortal. Lazarus may well have gone on to live to a ripe old age, but he would then die again. Lazarus has not been raised here with an imperishable spiritual body. No, he won't get that until the resurrection of the dead at the last day, to which Martha alludes in verse 24. 
And see also 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 42 to 44 on that. Now, this raising of the dead of Lazarus, as stupendous as it must have been to all bystanders, nonetheless points us towards the better resurrection of Jesus himself. So it's, it's a little surprising, therefore, that Lazarus has acquired something of a cult following. Uh, there are various medieval legends about what he went on to do, and uh, one of them has it that he ended up in France and is buried either at Autun Cathedral or in Marseille, depending on who you ask. So, you know, maybe that's what happened to him. Uh, if you go on the internet, like I did yesterday, and look for works of popular theology, you'll find the gospel according to Lazarus. Uh, it gets better still. So if you go on Wikipedia, as I did, you'll find that the name Lazarus is used in science and popular culture with reference to apparent restoration to life. And there's even a scientific term, Lazarus taxon, denoting organisms that reappear in the fossil record after a period of apparent extinction. And get this, best of all, uh, uh, no, sorry, two more things. The raising of Lazarus has been the subject of magnificent works of art by Caravaggio and Rembrandt, but even better than those, the most significant of all, undoubtedly, is when I heard the football commentator Ian Dennis referring to a Manchester City comeback as like Lazarus rising from the dead. <laughs> even better than Caravaggio. But all this fixation on Lazarus rising from the dead misses the point of John's account. Yes, Lazarus's resurrection was grounds for cracking open a few bottles of the best Bethany vintage, but what John records in verse 45, just beyond our passage, is that many people who witnessed this miracle believed in Jesus. They'd seen firsthand how he'd been sent to conquer death, they saw Lazarus's resurrection and they believed Lazarus. No, they believed Jesus. That's how Lazarus's resurrection glorified God the Father and God the Son. People are now turning to the Son of God in large numbers and putting their faith in him. So we must make sure that in our thinking about Lazarus, we look towards Jesus' better resurrection. The raising of Lazarus is indeed the latest of Jesus' various signs that we've been looking at throughout the Gospel of John, signs that show us his true identity and through which he reveals to us his glory. So if you think back to when we did John chapter 2, when Jesus changed water into wine, the wedding feast of Cana, all of the signs from that one onwards uh, are showing us gloriously who Jesus is and uh, what he offers. The raising of Lazarus is the clearest sign yet of what has been at the heart of the gospel message, that Jesus is the one who gives life. I am the resurrection and the life. And this glorious life he offers us doesn't come easily. Sometimes we can get the impression that Jesus just snaps his fingers like that and, hey, presto, 
another miraculous healing is performed. But that's not how it's recorded here. As Jesus walks towards Lazarus' tomb in verse 38, it's not like that at all. In fact, it's more like, as uh, the great theologian John Calvin puts it, Christ does not come to the sepulchre as an idle spectator, but like a wrestler, like a wrestler prepared for the contest. Therefore, no wonder that he groans again, for the violent tyranny of death which he had to overcome stands before his eyes. When Jesus asked for the stone to be rolled away, he knows how much energy he will have to expend as he wrestles against rigor mortis to reverse death and raise Lazarus up to life again. Yes, there is a resounding victory for Jesus over death here, but it is not the victory over death. No, we are to read this raising of the dead as a foreshadowing of Jesus' own death and resurrection. Look at the details. Look at the sadness of the people, the spectacle of the empty tomb, the strips of linen. And ironically, looking forward into uh, the rest of chapter 11 and into chapter 12, and I'm probably stealing somebody else's thunder here, the plot to kill Jesus is gathering pace. All these little details are being planted in the text to prepare us for Easter. The cross and the tomb. The resurrection that matters the most. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do we believe this? If we do, then we'll need to consider, thirdly, what it means to receive Jesus' loving care, the hope that he offers, even in the face of death. So, thirdly, comfort to the living. The main focus of the Lazarus episode is not Jesus' delay in coming to Lazarus, though we've thought about why that was deliberate. The main focus of the Lazarus episode is not even the miracle itself, though that was astonishing. No, the delay and the miracle frame what is actually the main focus of the episode, how Jesus comforts the sisters, Martha and Mary. So let's look back over verses 17 to 36, where Jesus greets the sisters four days after Lazarus has died. And let's just imagine for a moment how different the narrative would be if Jesus had breezed into Bethlehem and there was no mention of his compassion for Lazarus's family. And you know what? Perhaps the disciples were worrying along these lines after what had happened in verses 14 to 15, where Jesus went as, as far as to say, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake, I am glad I was not there. Well, hold on a minute, Jesus, we can hear them thinking to themselves. So your good friend has, your good friend has died, and you're glad 
just because it makes for a great teaching opportunity? Come on, Jesus, surely there are ways of teaching this that don't involve a close friend dying, aren't there? Is that what you're going to say when we get to Bethany? When Mary and Martha come running up to you, weeping, saying, if only you'd come sooner, Jesus, will you really wave them aside with a cheery smile and say, never fear, sisters, it had to be this way so that you lot will all start believing in me. Well, I don't know exactly how they were thinking, um, but what we can say from these verses, this passage, is that Jesus is simply not in the business of coercing belief in him, irrespective of people's feelings. Yes, Jesus knows why he has allowed Lazarus to die first. It's for the good reason that raising him from death will bring glory to the Father and to the Son. But Jesus also knows that the route to glory is not to pull off a miraculous stunt that flies in the face of Martha and Mary's grief. In verses 33, 35 and 38, we see just how deep Jesus' compassion goes. He's profoundly moved when he sees Mary and the community weeping together. And he's deeply moved for a second time as he approaches Lazarus's tomb. And then verse 35, Jesus wept. So pithy, so suggestive, so beautifully encapsulating how Jesus reaches out to Mary and to her friends. Their anguish, quite simply, is his too. And it's in this moment that we see a fulfillment of one of the great messianic prophecies of Isaiah. Isaiah 53, verse 3, that the Christ would be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as the authorised version puts it. Jesus' deep outpouring of emotion here is therefore another sign of who he is, the Christ who is one among us, who feels the rawness of death upon the living. Hebrews 4 verse 15 sums it up no less beautifully, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weakness. Isn't that such a great comfort to us in these times? If someone close to you has recently passed away, well, I pray that you would feel the deep compassion of Jesus who meets us in our weakest moments just as he met Mary, the sister of Lazarus. And if we ourselves are ministering to someone recently bereaved, then we can learn so much from Jesus' example here, being there, getting alongside, sharing the sorrow. The sorrow is real, it goes deep, but as we've seen consistently throughout our passage, wherever Jesus is at work, there is great hope. And there's someone else who models that resurrection hope to us here, and it's Mary's sister, Martha. Martha, that's right. 
the, the ever practical sister, the one who on a previous occasion had been rebuked for getting her priorities all wrong, getting bogged down in preparations when she should have been listening to Jesus' teaching. I, I love Martha. I would have done that too. I'm a Martha. Well, this time, let's look at verse 21. She gets it spot on. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. What a wonderful, confused, but genuine step of faith this is. Lazarus is dead. But even now, she has an inkling that it's not all over. Now that's the kind of faith that Jesus can work with. And he does. He promises her that her brother will rise again. And not only that, he enlarges her capacity for faith even further, promising that she too can partake in resurrection life. Verse 27 again. Again, she responds in faith. She says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is come into the world. This surely is one of the most comforting declarations of belief in the Gospels, and one that brings Jesus great glory. In the midst of turmoil, and though she may not fully understand him, Martha puts her trust in Jesus. Before she's even seen the miracle, she believes he has power over death. And no one else in the passage does that. Her faith is enough. And notice that she's not someone who's super spiritual. If you look again at verse 39, you see her practical self getting the better of her again as she's trying to stop Jesus opening up a smelly tomb. Cue another gentle rebuke from the Lord. But that's okay. Martha's imperfect, shaky faith is enough. And so we too can take confidence that however flimsy our faith may be, Jesus can work with it. And by his immeasurable grace, he can give us more than we could ever ask for or imagine. So what about you and I? Maybe you're somebody here, a young person from Laser perhaps, who has not yet experienced the death of a loved one and dreading what it might be like. That's something I dreaded as a teenager, and I still do. Maybe you're a bit older and are facing a serious illness. And as I said earlier, that too is something I very much fear. Maybe you have experienced a bereavement and it still causes you to doubt Jesus' power over the tyranny of death. And I too experience those kinds of doubts. So whatever your situation and mine, I pray that as we've been thinking about John's gospel this morning, Jesus would be at work in us all, taking away our fears and replacing them with the hope of the resurrection. I pray that we'd all leave here today with a Martha-like faith so we can face our difficulties with confidence, the confidence of Jesus beside us in the suffering 
and leading us to a greater faith, showing us ever greater things of himself. So Jesus says to us all, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Amen.